his lordship and, and, and is worshiping him, is turned towards him. He has authority in every, every area of our life, you know. Um, if we're walking in freedom, we're, we're, if, you know, we're free to do things and we're free not to do things. And if we can't exercise both freedoms, we're not really free, right? It's, um, so then we also saw there's several scriptures that, that, that kind of are important for us to recognize that when they were sacrificing to idols, they were actually sacrificing to demons. And, and so it isn't, you know, God wasn't threatened by a little wooden statue, but what, and he's not threatened by demons either. But he's just, he's just passionate that they recognize that he is their God. There's another verse in Revelation that talks about the worship of demons and idols and how this is kind of the same thing. And so we talked about how, uh, how to replace idol worship with worship of the true, uh, true God. We talked about the difference between spiritual warfare and deliverance. And this is an important distinction because a lot of times when people think about spiritual warfare, all they think about is deliverance. And deliverance is just a tiny little part. I mean, demons are just, you know, they're, they're whatever they are. They're just little minions that are doing Satan's work. But, uh, but you know, there's this battle that's raging on that where, the, where, where there's principalities and forces of evil at work. And Paul writes about that. And that's spiritual warfare. And then dealing also with how the enemy attacks us in our minds. That's spiritual warfare. And so it's a much broader subject. Deliverance is just a tiny uh, part of it where, where it talks about releasing demonic bondages and getting a person free from idols in their life. Um, and God wants to completely restore us. He can. We can be a new creation because he is the creator. But uh, Paul writes about spiritual warfare when he talks about the armor of the Lord. And a lot of people, when they talk about spiritual warfare, this is the passage they really get into. And I'm assuming that a lot of you have had sermons or messages on this, so there's not a, a whole lot here that, um, that you probably haven't already studied and know. Um, but it's just a good reminder that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, powers of the dark world, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms, and, and that kind of thing. And to put on the full armor of God, and then there's all these different things here that he talks about, which I'm sure you know all of you are familiar with. So I just I'm just kind of assuming that, and I uh, I'm not going to use that as my principal passage. But uh, there's four elements of deliverance uh, ministry, and a lot of times people just think about casting out demons, and that's part of it. But there's there's strongholds, there's legal grounds, inner healing is also uh, a deliverance ministry. Although most people don't think about it in terms of that, but you're being delivered from your pain, from your sorrow, from your woundedness. And we looked at some keys uh, to look for when you're dealing with deliverance, and that was me speaking to you as leaders. If you ever have to do deliverance or you feel like the Holy Spirit is leading you into that with someone, you know, just some questions, some things to look at um, as, as you're involved in that process. And, you know, it is kind of scary at first from the perspective of, you know, we're dealing with the unseen. So, it, you know, from that sense, it's kind of a surprise but I would encourage you to think of it as surprise more than fear, because we have nothing to fear. Uh, you know, we're on God's side, and uh, if you can imagine, just if you're doing deliverance, just imagine you know, standing beside you or behind you is the God of the universe, you know, with all of His angels and His whole host of army and all that kind of stuff, and He's right there with you. You have nothing to fear. Um, but sometimes it is surprising when we're dealing with some stuff because. Uh, because it's, we're dealing with the unseen. 
And uh, here's some great resources. There's also a, a book that uh, Samantha mentioned, too, uh, by Derek Prince, Blessings and Curses. And then I think Derek Prince has another book out, too, called Spiritual Warfare. Uh, and he passed away a few years ago. So these books are kind of gems. I don't know how long they'll be out there, but I would encourage you, if you're, if you're interested in this whole area, to read his books. I would say his books probably are, have provided foundation for almost everybody that I know that's done deliverance ministry. <laughs> And, uh, and he's been really involved with Israel. Uh, he was a good friend of my parents. And uh, my dad and, and Derek Prince and a few others kind of re rebooted the Feast of the Tabernacles uh, in Jerusalem years ago. Um, and so anyways, that's, that's, uh, he's a good resource center for all of this. We, had, we went through some x-ray questions, just some questions to think about um, and, and just kind of pontificate. Any questions from yesterday? Yeah. Mm. Okay, generational curses and how that plays into spiritual warfare, and and even deliverance. Um, <clears throat> uh, so there's 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 two types of generation. <clears throat> I don't actually subscribe to the idea of the young generation, you know, and all that kind of stuff because we don't see that in the Bible. We see generations as being. Uh, like the 40, the, the, the Israelites that died in the wilderness, those were children and old people in that 40-year span. You know what I mean? So that generation had to do with that season of time. And I believe all of us are actually in the same generation, according to God. We're all, we're all in the same period of time, which means we need to figure out how to work together as young and old and in between. And, uh, and so we're in that same season, that same generation of time. But what she's referring to is generational curses, which means, you know, things that are passed down from your lineage. And um, I'll give you an example of this. We had a friend who, she had had four miscarriages, was married, had four miscarriages, was trying to have a baby. And uh, after the fourth one, she almost didn't make it, just from a perspective of she just felt zero self-worth, felt like every part of her design wasn't functioning the way she had hoped it would. She was almost borderline, well, she was borderline suicidal, and she was very discouraged. And, uh, and then they got pregnant a fifth time, and she had another miscarriage, and she was uh, in the hospital, and she was already dreading the aftermath, you know, what was going to be coming next. And as she was lying in the hospital bed, though, the whole room kind of just disappeared, and suddenly she was lying in her bed, but on a hillside, and on the hill... Uh, was Jesus, and Jesus had these children, all different ages, and was holding a baby in his arms. And he said to her, I want you to know, you know, you've been a mother, uh, and I have your child, these are your five children, and even though you only carried them for a very short period of time, I still deposited their spirit in them. And they're here with me today, and I just want you to look at them. And she was just able to lie there for a while, a good half an hour, hour, and just watch her children playing with Jesus. And the recovery was much quicker after that, obviously, uh, after that miscarriage. But her and her husband still felt like they needed to, um, to meet with us for prayer. So they flew over from California and asked if they could just come stay with us for a few days for us to pray over them. And, uh, and we said, sure, of course. As, as we're praying, um, Hidan and I are praying, I just had a question about abortion. I said, you know, have you had an abortion? I asked her. She said, no, I haven't had an abortion. 
She said, my sisters have had an abortion, my mom uh, had an abortion, and my mom wanted to abort me, but that didn't work out. And then my grandmother had an abortion, and she's just kind of sharing this storyline of abortion. And then he starts crying, the husband, and he says, actually, I forced my girlfriend in high school to get an abortion. And so there's all this stuff. And, uh, and this is, you know, generational curses are not something that um, are just put on us. They're the results of a sin or, or something that has been passed down from generation to generation. And, and it's not something that they have to be delivered from necessarily, although sometimes that's the case. But I just said to, I just said to them, you know, I just want to encourage you, uh, Daniel 9, Nehemiah 9, Ezekiel 9, we call those the three nines in, uh, in identificational repentance. Um, Ezekiel 9, D Nehemiah 9, and Daniel 9. All, all of those chapters are chapters where they pray prayers of repentance on behalf of the forefathers and the generations behind them. And I love the way Nehemiah starts. He says, um, he says God, it is true. <laughs> I just love the way he starts that. It is true. Our forefathers rebelled against you. You brought them out of Egypt. And he goes into this whole confession of sin on behalf of the previous generations. Daniel does the same thing. Ezekiel does the same thing. And so I just said to her, I just said, you know, I would just encourage you. I said, I'm sure you, you know, you, I, I said to the husband, I'm sure you've repented from uh, ask, you know, forcing your girlfriend to get an abortion. He said, actually, I don't think I have. He said, I, it didn't really occur to me. Uh, I don't think I have. He said, I've repented about a lot of things in that relationship, but I don't think I repented about that. I said, well, I think you just need to repent about that. And I just said to her, I just feel you have authority as a Christian, as a royal priesthood, 2 Peter 2.9, that, uh, that you can just stand in the gap and you can say, on behalf of my family, my mother, my grandmother, and who knows how long back, I just want to ask for forgiveness for the sin of abortion in our family. And as she did that, uh, and I said, I'm just going to give you guys like half an hour to do that and work it out, you know, before the cross and stuff, and then we'll come back and pray. And so Hidan and I kind of left, went for a walk, and uh, came back, and, uh, and they had done that. And then I just, you know, just prayed a prayer of blessing over them. You know, the very first words God spoke to humanity was a blessing. Isn't that cool? He created Adam and Eve, and it says, and then God blessed them. And said, be fruitful and multiply. So the very first thing God spoke was a blessing over humanity. And so I just kind of recaptured that blessing and said, just be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth. Um, you know, there's a verse in Isaiah that says, the earth was not created to be uh, void. There's another verse that says that uh, God created the earth to be inhabited. So he wants the earth to be full of people. And, uh, and so I said to them, you know, be fruitful and multiply. And uh, she got pregnant about, about four months later and had a baby boy. And then a uh, short time after that, they got pregnant again and, and had a baby girl. And uh, I don't know how many babies they're going to have, but they're at two right now. So that's just kind of an example of, of generational curses. Um, and sometimes they can be things that we're, we're aware of and sometimes they're not. But I found that if you just wait before the Lord and you say, God, are there any generational curses that are impacting my life right now? And if there are, can you just speak them to me and reveal them to me so I can repent from them and get them out of the way and just write them all down, uh, repent from them, and then just burn it? I like burning stuff because it's a great visual image of what actually happens in the spiritual when we, when we repent. So that's, um, 
that's the generational curses thing. Does that make sense? I think as far as, the <coughs> as far as the skipping a generation, we don't read that in scripture. Uh, it's passed down from generation to generation. So there's nothing that skips. I believe that when it's broken, it's broken. Now, that doesn't mean the next generation can't make stupid decisions and fall back into it. But I think that when it's broken, it's broken. That's the, I mean, the power of Jesus, the blood of Jesus is, is, is sufficient. You know, as far as the sister goes, I think it's possible for you you know, as a bloodline relative to just stand before the throne and repent for the generations that have gone beyond and just say, you know, um, we're removing the legal grounds from our sister even and just, uh, and, just, and just say, you know, I just cancel all the plans of the enemy in the name of Jesus. We just cancel them and, and declare them void. Uh, the contract's over. It's done. And just pray, you know, for her. If she's open to it, you can do it when she's there. If she's not, then you don't have to do it when she's there, yeah, kind of thing. Ryan and I, because I got concerned, I learned about this um, during my mom's death. Her ho- she was in hospice for like three weeks, mm-hmm. unconscious. And Ryan and I went in and prayed relief from generational curses over her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. There's such power in the name of Jesus, uh, and and the blood of Jesus. I mean, we. I mean, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. I mean, I think our our biggest regret, if we have any, when we get to heaven, which some people say we won't, because there won't be tears and stuff, but would be to see the power that we had at our disposal that we just never made use of. Uh, because in our minds where the battleground is, we just didn't believe we had it or we didn't believe whatever. Uh, we, never, we never really accessed it. But the reality is there's tremendous power in the name of Jesus. And, uh, and you know, Paul writes, his grace is sufficient for me. Paul writes, you know, nothing can separate me from the love of God. And uh, sometimes we can forget who wrote that. You know, this is a guy who, when he closed his eyes at night, he saw the faces of the people who were dying. He saw their rocks hitting their skulls. He saw, you know, he heard the screams of children whose parents had just gotten stoned. And, and he's, I mean, this is what the enemy is probably bringing up in his mind because I'm sure he's no different from you and I. And I'm sure the enemy was saying, you know, you deserve to be in prison, not for the gospel, but because you're a murderer, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And so those are really statements of spiritual warfare. You know, his grace is sufficient for me. That was, that was Paul speaking truth 
in, in, you know, in, the, in the face of the enemy's lies and that nothing can separate me from the love of God. It's a powerful statement coming from a guy who, who uh, was so murderous that the Christians in Jerusalem were you know, hiding in their homes and panicked, afraid of him. So, you know, I mean, it's a big statement. So there is power in the name of Jesus and in the power of the cross, and, and it's sufficient. You know, the blood of Jesus is sufficient. So, yeah. And I, you know, my parents surprised me a couple years ago when they said they had never heard their par parents tell them, I love you. My dad had never heard that from his parents, and my mom had never heard that from her parents. And I was just completely shocked because our family has been, you know, I love you, I love you ever since I can remember and all huggy and, you know, we're a very huggy family. And, and uh, I just assumed my parents had gotten that from their parents, you know. So I was shocked when I found out that they hadn't. Uh, and that just tells you the, the power of Jesus to start whole new family systems. You know, some of you are afraid of marriage. That's not a fear the Lord wants you to have either. Because of the power of Jesus, he can start whole new family systems, you know. And, uh, and yeah, I, when I parent my kids and people compliment me on how we parent our kids, I think of just how much the Lord has done in my parents' life that influenced me and how different my kids are being parented from how my great-grandparents probably parented their kids. And we call that the progressive revelation of God. Here, I'll show that to you. It's a theological term. And uh, if you have a, a guy, he's, ha he's sad right now. And then he, and well, let's say, and then there's a girl. Doo -doo -doo. She has a skirt. She has long hair, so you know she's a girl. Uh, sorry, David. And, um, <laughs> and she's sad. Now, let's say that, let's say they're both like 23 years old, right? And let's say at age 25, uh, they become Christians. And so they go from, they're happy now because they're Christians. And, um, and so, so they have a little baby. Here's their baby. And, uh, yeah, he, he's a girl. She's a girl. There we go. And, uh, and so they have a baby. By the time that baby, they raise that baby in the knowledge of God, by the time that baby reaches 25, uh, she'll know a lot more about God than her parents did at age 25. You see that? And then she ends up marrying a guy who loves the Lord and has been raised in a Christian family, and they have a baby. By the time that baby reaches age 25, that baby will know a lot more about God than the parents did and way more than the grandparents did at age 25. You see how that works? And that's the progressive revelation of God. Each generation gets to build on the revelation of God that the previous generation had, had learned from. And so you have that in families, but you also have that in nations, like in Korea, for instance. You know, that nation is growing in the progressive revelation of God. You can have it in, uh, you know, in organizations or in tribes and clans or whatever. And, uh, and in our own lives as individuals, a progressive revelation of God. Yep. Mm -hmm. Well, that's true. And that's the problem. That's why Jesus, that's why God was so against marrying non-Christians or marrying uh, people from the idolatrous nations around them. Uh, it wasn't interracial marriage that God was concerned about because Moses married a black girl, so he wasn't concerned about interracial marriage, obviously. Uh, the Jews weren't, the, <laughs> right, Mia? The Jews weren't, uh, the Jews weren't a racial community. They weren't a, it wasn't a race. The Jews weren't a race. The Jews were a community of people who believed in one God, who believed in God. 
and they, were, they came from all over the world. That's why you have you know, Japanese Jews and Chinese Jews and Ethiopian Jews and all these Jews from all over the world. And so it wasn't a race. It was a community of believers. What God was very against was marrying people from idolatrous nations because he said, you will serve their gods. And, and he was right. Every time that happened, they would end up serving their, their gods. And so you have these horrible passages like in Ezra and stuff like that where they had to leave their wives and, you know, their wives, they kicked their wives out. And, and there was lots of weeping and mourning because their wives had been, uh, you know, idolatrous and were from idolatrous nations. So people who say, oh, it's okay if I date a non-Christian or whatever, they don't understand, you know, this is, and they're like, where is that in Scripture? It's throughout all of Scripture. Give me a break. It's all over the place. God does not want us uh, marrying into someone who does not know God because you can have the regressive revelation of God instead of the progressive revelation of God. It, you know, because that whole thing breaks down when that person marries someone who's godless and then that child is raised confused and it just gets worse and worse. And so that can happen in a nation too. Yeah, exactly right. As nations turn their back on gods, we see that with the nation of Israel too. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Right. And developing our children too, Absolutely. you know. And there's a great. I think is it John Maxwell has a book out, developing the leader in your kids, uh, a new book that just came out, and um, I can't wait to read it. I haven't gotten it yet, but uh, developing the leader in your child or developing the leader in your kids or something like that. But um, you know, you want to keep developing. Uh, that because you have to recognize the responsibility that's been passed on to you from the previous generations. You don't want to drop the ball on, on what God has revealed to your family. Right, second generation YWAMers? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep, I know. I know. I'm a second generation YWAMer too. <laughs> Well, that's, you know, that's really the parent. It's our responsibility to coach our children in the fact that church is a great place for fellowship and community, but, but really we walk in relationship with God personally. You know, because I think what they're turning their backs on is religion. But they're not turning their backs on relationship with God because we're all craving that. And so you have to kind of deprogram them, <coughs> you know, from away from religion. Um, I, Keith Green, you know, before he died, he said, uh, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. And, uh, and I think that's true, you know. And so we have to kind of, you know, we have to deprogram people from religion. And I'm saying that as a pastor, you know, and, and lead people in relationship uh, because that's really what we're craving. And there's been a lot of woundedness, a lot of pain, a lot of hurt because of religion, you know, the spirit of fear and control. Uh, and, uh, and as a pastor, I've asked for forgiveness all over the place for that because a lot of people have been hurt by pastors and by, you know, the religious community, graceless religion, one of those channels of shame that we saw. And, uh, you know, so we just need to encourage people like that, even if they're walking away from the church, to say, hey, you know, whether you walk away from the church or whatever, you know, I want to encourage you to develop relationship with God. I was in Singapore 
and I'm sitting there by myself by the water eating, and there's this kind of an older Chinese guy sitting by himself eating, and so he starts talking to me, and then he says, hey, I own one of the largest karaoke bars in Singapore, you should come by, and, uh, and so I just felt like I should go by there. So after I finish eating, I go by his bar, and of course I walk in, and he sees me, and immediately uh, picks up a book and a microphone and waves me over and sticks it in front of me, and I thought, oh, you know, the place is packed out. It was a really big bar, and the place is packed out. And uh, so he hands this to me. I'm flipping through the book. I'm not really seeing anything. You know, uh, there's like Love Me Thunder, Love Me True, uh, Elvis Presley song. Um, typos all over the place. <laughs> and, uh, and so I just, um, I just decided, uh, I just kind of felt like the Lord just said, I just want you to sing a cappella. And I want you to sing that song, um, Pour Out My Heart. You know, here I am once again. I pour out my heart, you know. And so I and so I just kind of closed the book. The guy comes over. He goes, "So, what are you going to sing?" And I said, "You know, I'm just going <clears> to <throat> I'm just going to sing a song a cappella." And he's like, uh, "You mean no music?" I said, "Yeah." He goes, uh, "We've never done that before." I said, "Great, neither have I." So uh, he gives he gives me the microphone, and but then he before he does that, he says, "Everybody, hey, everybody, quiet down." And he like quiets the whole bar down. And he goes, uh, we have a young man here from Hawaii who wants to sing a song uh, without any background. <laughs> and I just start singing this song, you know, here I am once again. You know, pour out my heart. Uh, and so, uh, I know that you hear every cry, you are listening and all that. And I just sang it. And I mean, you could not, there was nothing moving in the bar. I mean, it was dead quiet. People weren't even sipping on their drinks. It was just dead quiet. And I sang it twice. And then I sang the chorus, you know. Um, tw another time, and then that was it. And I and I gave the mic back to the guy, and there was still like no sound. And then uh, all of a sudden, the whole bar just breaks out and clapping and cheering. And all these people are coming up, and they're saying, you know, oh, that was just the best song I've ever heard. You know, did you write that? And I was like, no, I didn't write it. And you know, um, and I just know it was the Lord just ministering to everybody there, because this guy comes up to me. And he was probably in his late 60s, early 70s, and he's standing there, and these tears are streaming down his eyes, and he says, I know that song. And I said, oh, you do? He goes, yep. He said, I know that song. And all of a sudden, I just, you know, the insight, the discernment that the Holy Spirit gives us, I said to us, um, you've been very hurt by church, haven't you? And he goes, yes, I have. And, he said, and I said, you've been hurt by a pastor. And he said, yes. He said, it, it, I left the church because I was deeply hurt by the pastor. And I said to him, you know, the whole reason the Lord brought me to this bar to sing this song was to let you know that it's not about church, it's about relationship with him. And I said, uh, you need to forgive everybody that was involved and reconnect with God because he is desiring relationship with you. And, uh, and you know, we just gave each other a big hug and then he left and I left. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just kind of like, um, we, sometimes we just have to help people f through that, that stuff, you know. Um, church is great, great place for community, great place to love each other, express our love to each other and our love for God. That's kind of what our church is all about. And, um, but there are people who have been really hurt by it because a lot of churches get focused on, you know, programs and policies more than, more than they do people. Any other uh, questions, comments? No? Is the piano on? Is it on? Should we sing? Let's sing. Right. Here, Bo. Oh, you want to do it? Bo's painting. Okay. It's just, there's forward. Yeah. 
and backwards. <laughs> this is um this is just a very complicated song that says Jesus is all that I need. Just kidding, it's not a complicated song. Let's all stand together. <laughs> Jesus is all that I need. Jesus is all that I need. Well, he's my healer and my provider, my strength in times of weakness. Jesus is all that I need. Sing that again. Jesus is all that I need. Jesus is all that I need. Well, he's my healer and my provider, my strength in times of weakness. Jesus is all that I need. In Korean, it's uh, yes.
song just came when um, the Lord said to me, hey, Derek, you know what? I trust you. I said, oh, no, 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 no. I trust you. And he goes, no, I trust you. I said, no, no, I trust you. <laughs> and we had this little argument. And then it got kind of quiet. And he said, I trust that when you discover how much I really love you, you'll fall in love with me again. Thank you, Jesus. You may be seated. Like people will kill me if I don't finish that story. We'll we'll we'll, we'll get to the story. Uh, there's a couple of verses here. There's um, Isaiah 26 verse. <laughs> don't worry, we'll get right to it. Isaiah 26 verse three. You will keep in perfect peace those mind those whose mind is steadfast because they trust in you, or those the King James version would say those whose mind is stayed on thee. In other words, those whose mind is focused on you. God will keep it in perfect peace. So again, the importance of the mind, uh, where the battleground is, if you want to have perfect peace in your mind, it's because we're focused, we're, we're steadfast, focused on Him. Uh, remember I was talking about the healthy spirit and what we feed our spirit. In Philippians 4, verse 8, uh, obviously, finally, brothers and sisters, 
Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Like somebody got that tattooed one time on their wrist, the, the um, noble, you know, true, noble, right, pure, all that stuff, because that's what we should be talking about during the day. Uh, and so um, a key to spiritual warfare and uh, deliverance is the revelation of the Holy Spirit that helps us to see things from God's perspective. It's the revelation of the Holy Spirit. And I just want to, I'm just going to just talk briefly about the revelation of the Holy Spirit because it's so important. Um, everything I believe that, that we do in response to God, everything that we do in response to God comes from a revelation of the Holy Spirit. Um, everything good that we do, I guess, when we make the right decisions, comes because we've had a revelation uh, uh, by the Holy Spirit, from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our agent of communication between us and God. That's why at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell, it, it was manifested by uh, tongues of fire and, and uh, clear communication, right? It was, the, it was the redemption of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was... God confused the understanding of the language. And then in Pentecost, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, God restored everyone could hear the things of God in their own language. Uh, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. We don't serve a created thing. We serve the uncreated God. And he's spirit. It's a spirit presence. So God is not restricted by physical walls or financial constrictions. He's not limited by space or time. Uh, he is spirit. He can travel in and out of time. And, uh, and he's spirit. His worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. And you guys have probably heard this verse a thousand times in the school. I'm sure every speaker likes to bring it up because it's a good one. Uh, the question that she asked Jesus was, you know, should we go to church? And the answer Jesus gave was, that's basically what she was asking. You know, do we need to go to the temple to worship? And, and Jesus answered, you're going to be doing spirit-to-spirit communication and worship uh, because your heart, your body is going to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. The, this is not a new spirit. This is a spirit that we see in Genesis chapter 1 where now the earth was formless and empty and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It's the spirit that we see in Genesis 41 where Pharaoh asked, can we find anyone like this man uh, one in whom is the Spirit of God. Isn't that great? I mean, Pharaoh recognized that uh, Abraham had the Spirit of God in him. Um, you know, Exodus 31, you know, this is um, the Lord speaking to Moses and says, Hey, look, I've chosen Bezal Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God with wisdom and understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze. Isn't that great? When we think about God filling somebody with the Spirit, we think about a prophetic ministry, or we think about, you know, a pastoral ministry, or we think about some kind of ministry. God filled him with his Spirit so he could be a great artist and in his work with gold, silver, and bronze, uh, and cut stones, and set stones in wood, and work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Uh, that's why when I spoke on the character of a worship leader in the last school of worship, I said the character of a worship leader is the same as the character of a plumber. You know, it's the same thing. Because at the end, we all want to have the character of God in us. 
And, uh, and here's, uh, you know, Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, from the tribe of Judah, who was skilled in working with stone and wood and all that kind of stuff. And God filled him with his spirit. Um, it's the same spirit that we see in Numbers 24, verse 2, where Balaam, uh, the spirit of God, came on him. Uh, Saul, the spirit of God, came powerfully on him in, in, uh, sorry, in 1 Samuel 10.10. 10. And uh, we read about it also in 1 Samuel 19, where we read the story about how the spirit of God came on Saul's men, and they all prophesied. And so then Saul went down to see what was going on, and the Spirit of God came on him as he walked along, and he began prophesying. So this is the Spirit of God falling. You, see, you have to understand, you know, the Pentecost was not like suddenly the Holy Spirit appeared on the planet at Pentecost. That's not at all what happened. The Spirit of God has, is from the beginning, has been throughout all of Scripture. Now the Spirit of God, remember I said, is our agent of revelation. If we see here Luke 2.26... It was revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. 1 Corinthians 2.6, God's wisdom is revealed by the Spirit. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.10, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. So Ephesians 3 verse 5, which was not made known to the people in other generations as it now has been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is the one that brings us revelation. Um, and the verse that I, that, um, that I mentioned earlier in Romans 8, 11, oops, right up here, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. So now you can connect the fact that instead of idolatry and demons and all that stuff, when, when we give our life to Jesus, the Spirit of God dwells in us because in Galatians 4, you are His sons. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. And then, of course, there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit and all that stuff that happens. The, but the Holy Spirit is the, revel, is the Spirit uh, that brings us revelation, and it's a revelation from the inside out. It's a revelation as the Spirit of God connects with our spirit, gives us wisdom, gives us understanding, gives us insight into the knowledge of God, into the deep things of God. Jeremiah 33.3, 3, Call unto me and I'll answer you and show you great and mysterious things you do not know. So he can actually show us things that we do not know, spirit by spirit revelation. And this comes by the movement of the Holy Spirit. If you look at the words that describe the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God in Scripture, wind, river, fire, these are all movement words. Um, you know, if the wind isn't blowing, it's, um, well, there's no wind. And if, there's, if the river isn't flowing, it's not a river, it's a pond or something. And if the fire is not burning then, you know, it's just, I mean, it's nothing. It's, it's just a coal or an ember or something. Um, these are all movement words. And so the Spirit of God in us moves us to do stuff uh, as we get revelation from His Spirit. That's why we read in, like, Exodus 
35 verse 21, when it's talking about generosity and giving at the temple, uh, giving for the temple project, it says, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of meeting and for all its services and for the holy garments. Sorry, this was raising money for the tabernacle, not the temple. Tabernacle was uh, God's idea. Tabernacle was, uh, temple was man's idea. Tabernacle was God's idea. Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him. So there's the movement of the spirit. Uh, in Luke 2, 26 and 28, it says, uh, it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit, we just saw that one, that he would not die before he had seen the Lord. But here it says, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. It is the Spirit of God that moves from within us to give us revelation and to actually get us to do things. They're movement words. <coughs> if the Spirit of God is not moving in you, <coughs> then I would encourage you to just ask God why. <laughs> Why, why are we parked? Why are we in park right now? Why is there not movement happening? Because the Spirit of God is a movement. Uh, it's like a, it's like, a, like a verb almost. It's just always it's moving. It's in movement. The fire, the river, um, uh, the wind. And uh, we read in John 16, 13 to 14, However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit of God can guide us into all truth. All truth. The Spirit of God. So if you're in a situation where you're kind of confused, or where you're unsure of something, or you're not unsure of what decision to make, or what direction to take a meeting, or you're unsure of whatever, just, just seek the Spirit of God, because he will move within you. Um, with into all truth. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, it says in Romans 8, 16. <clears throat> the Spirit of himself testifies with our spirit. There's that spirit-to-spirit communication I've been talking about, that we are God's children. So his spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And uh, just because something is invisible doesn't mean that it's not real, right? Uh, when we look at that story of 2 Kings 6, when the servant of, um, of, of Elisha, you know, saw that the horses and chariots had come around their village, it says he became afraid. Uh, well, he didn't become afraid. He said, oh, Lord, you know, what shall we do? Or if he's from the south, it's probably like, oh, Lord, you know, what shall we do? Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? Anyways, the servant asked, uh, the prophet said, do not be afraid. So that was the first thing, was do not be afraid. And those who are with us are much more than those who are with them. And then the servant, um, Elisha, prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. Open his eyes so that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked, and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, Elisha said, those who are with us more than those who are with them. That was not a revelation from the outside. That was a revelation from the inside. It came from an inward place where God had reassured Elisha, a place where God had shown Elisha his perspective and the reality of their situation. And Elisha prayed, and it's amazing to me how simple things can be. Uh, when we feel things are so complicated. We see the army and everything. We feel things are so complicated. Such a simple prayer, isn't it, that Elisha prayed. 
Oh, Lord, open his eyes so he may see. <laughs> you know, it's not like fasting and contrition and like, you know, he's not, you know, he's not like fasting for 40 days and nights begging God. to. He just says a simple prayer. He just says, oh, Lord, open his eyes so he may see. And uh, the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You know, um, Gehazi, Elisha's servant, was not literally blind. He, he saw the Syrians. He saw the problem. Um, and actually his name, you know what his name means? It means uh, valleys of vision is what Gehazi means, which I think is funny. Um, he was not literally blind. He saw the problem. But here, I would challenge you. I would say that although he saw the problem, he was unable to perceive reality. He was seeing the problem, but he was not seeing reality. Because reality is, is what he saw when, when, uh, when Elisha said, open his eyes. So he saw the problem, but he didn't see the reality. The reality was, Elisha said, oh Lord, open his eyes. And all of a sudden, he could see the army of the Lord surrounding him. Whenever you're faced with a problem, I would just challenge you, God, open my eyes to the reality of everything going on. Not just the problem that I see, but open my eyes to the reality of everything going on. We read in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 to 6, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed, um, uh, displayed the, the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. I think there's an I-N missing there. In the face of Christ. So, um, what can we compare this to? I would suggest this is like people who look at, at nature, at creation, but they don't see God. Or people who look at a relationship and they don't see God's ability or power. Or they look at a situation, they don't see beyond the situation to seeing God's ability to overcome on our behalf. Or people who look at a world situation and it seems hopeless. Or a financial situation and they feel helpless or a marriage situation and it seems irreconcilable, or the list goes on and on. Think of a situation in your life, the kind of situation that when you go to bed, you're thinking about it. When you wake up in the morning, uh, you see the army of the Arameans. I don't know what it is in your life, but I want to encourage you that God wants to give you the perspective of the reality because now this story suddenly takes on a personal meaning for us. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the light of the gospel. That means they are needing the light. And we've talked about that before. When you're in darkness, it's hard to see. So spiritual blindness is actually when we see the problem and we follow our sight with fear instead of with faith. Remember the servant? He says, oh my Lord, what shall we do? And then Elisha says to him, don't be afraid. So he was following the, he was looking at the problem, but he was following it with fear instead of with faith. And, uh, and so when Elijah, and then Elisha prayed, oh Lord, open his eyes. So spiritual blindness is when we see the problem and we follow our sight with fear 
instead of with faith. Oh, thank you, Don. Yay. Uh, thank you, Samantha. We follow with fear instead of with faith. And that's the same fear that we see in Adam. You know, I heard God in the garden. I was afraid. It's the same fear that we see in Moses when he runs away to Midian. After he killed the guy, it says that he was afraid and he ran away. It's the same fear that we see in Peter when he meets Jesus and he tries to push him away. And he pushes Jesus away and he says, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And he was trying to push Jesus away. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, don't be afraid. <laughs> so we see this throughout scripture in people's lives. And spiritual blindness is when we see the problem, we follow our sight with fear instead of with faith. I want to talk about faith for a second because in Hebrews 11.1, 1, we read that now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. See, that's why I, that's why I mentioned that in relationship to spiritual blindness. Because in Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Assurance about what we do not see. And that goes back to Romans 1, where it says God's invisible qualities can be clearly seen <laughs> by what has been made, right? You see this whole thing with faith. Now, I just want to provide some clarity for you. I like that word, clarity, in light of faith. I want to provide some clarity for you in faith because... Uh, there's, there should be a difference between how we define faith as Christians and how non-Christians define faith. <coughs> For the non-Christians, uh, they define faith. And, you know, non-Christians will say it to you all the time, right? They use the word faith all the time. You know, got to have faith, man. Keep the faith, you know. And what does that mean? Keep the faith in what? In who? What? What are you talking about? You know, don't, don't ask many follow-up questions. They'll get all confused because they're keeping the faith. But, uh, you know, when they say faith... Usually what the world refers to as faith is um, stepping into the great unknown. And I've even heard some messages, you know, uh, about that, that movie that came out 150 years ago called Indiana Jones and, and uh, was it the Holy Grail or was it? Yeah, I think, and where he, he, he's standing on this cliff and he has to get across the chasm and it's when he takes that kind of leap of faith, which is a, which is a Kierkegaard statement, leap of faith is not a biblical concept. And, and he takes that step, and there's a bridge that appears that he didn't see because it was kind of camouflaged and blended in. And uh, this is how the world defines faith. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like these guys here. They're like, well, Indiana Jones did it. I guess, you know, it must be okay. So they just step off the, the cliff. You know, that's a scary perspective of faith. This is not our Christian faith. This is not what it should mean for us. And I'll give you an example. Let's say you're... Let's say you're climbing a cliff, and, uh, and let's say you're on this ledge, and you're on this cliff, and you're kind of moving along the ledge, and you're kind of climbing along it, and all of a sudden, you know, fog rolls in. That can happen very quickly in the, in the Alps or the Rockies. You know, fog moves in, and you can't see where you are, and all of a sudden, you get to the edge, and you get to the end, and there's nothing there, and you're sticking your foot down, and there's nothing there but air, and you can't see the way you came back. You can't see beyond where that is. And you start freaking out a little bit. And so you cry out for help and you say, help! And you hear this voice and this voice says, just let go! And you're like, who are you? And, and, and there's nothing that answers back. And you're standing there kind of scared to death thinking, just let go. That's the world's definition of faith. It's like, well, you just got to take a leap of faith. You know, just kind of whoop. You know, that's dumb. 
I want to encourage you, don't take a leap of faith. That's stupid. You might end up like crashing and burning on the ground beneath you. That's, that's not smart. That's not the Christian definition of faith. It shouldn't be anyways. The Christian definition of faith is like you're walking on your little ledge and you get to the end and the fog rolls in and you can't see anything and you're feeling around and you're like, ah, and you start to panic and you cry out and you say, help! And you hear this voice say, just let go! And, uh, and you say, who are you? And uh, we'll say they're from Switzerland. And uh, isn't that, where's, Swiss, where's Switzerland? Switzerland? Oh, over here, yeah. We'll say, from Switzerland. We'll say um, the guy says, my name is Hansi. And he says, I, I have, uh, right? It's like half a, half a Swiss German, his name is Hansi. And he says, my name is Hansi, and I know exactly where you are. Your great grand, my great-grandfather climbed that. My grandfather climbed it. My father climbed it. I've climbed it. You're at the edge of this little, little ledge, aren't you? If, if you just let go, you're actually only a meter off the ground. You probably didn't realize because of all the fog, but you've been going down, and so you just need to let go. And you know, uh, It's like my friend from Afghanistan who shares about his house getting bombed four different times. They had to rebuild the house, got bombed by the Soviets, got bombed by al-Qaeda, got bombed by you know, all these things, and so he's... He was talking about how he had to rebuild their house four times. And one time, there was a bomb that was coming, and he was running, you know, out to the backyard to the little bomb shelter. And he was just a kid, and he couldn't see. His dad was running in front of him, and then his dad kind of disappeared down into the hole to get into their bomb shelter. And he said there was just dust and, you know, shrapnel, everything swirling all over the place. And he looked down, and he couldn't see his dad in the hole. And his dad kept saying, just jump, just jump. And he said, but I can't see you. And his dad said, it's okay, I can see you. It's kind of like, you know, for us as Christians, um, our faith is not a scary faith. Our faith is just obediently moving forward with a God who loves us and cares for us. God knows you. He knows your situation. He knows your talents. He knows your giftings. He knows your calling. He knows your family history. He knows everything about you. And faith is just, it's not a scary thing. It's, even though it's unseen, God is unseen and he's, you know, he's our daddy. And, uh, you know, faith is, a, is just because it's unseen doesn't mean that it needs to be fear-filled. Because actually faith is just obediently moving forward with a God who loves us and who cares for us. And it's actually just a relationship-building exercise <laughs> as we get to walk in relationship with him. Even if we can't see where we are, he sees us. Mm-hmm. And so um, he was just like, I just, I wanted to share that. Mm-hmm. Like, and you just said that it was not 
Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, exactly. You know, <clears throat> if we would understand how small the big deals are to us, <laughs> does that make sense? <laughs> From God's perspective, you know, uh, I think we'd be a lot less nervous about taking risks because they're not really that risky after all. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's a good picture. Thank you. The, uh, the primary tool that the enemy uses in attacking us in our minds is lie, and uh, getting us to believe lies is words. And words have power. Let me tell you, words have the power to create. By, it was by a spoken word that the whole world was created. When God created, he spoke. That's the power of words when spoken by the Almighty God. But I think also our takeaway from that is that our words have the power to create. I'll give you an example. If I came to all of you when you're four years old and I said, how many of you can draw? That's like, that's like Kiara's age. And I'm, I'm standing up here with a marker. And I say, how many of you can draw? You'll all go, I can draw, I can draw, I can draw. You know, you'll smack the person next to you. I can draw, I can draw. Pick me, pick me, pick me. That's my favorite color. Blue's my, red, green, black is my favorite color. It's all my favorite color. I can draw. Now, I come to you 20 years later, and I say, how many of you can draw? Like, oh, my God, don't pick me. Please don't pick me. Lord, have him not pick me. I can't draw. And Jesus, please don't have him pick me. Right? And then you get the one person who raises their hand, like, I mean, I can kind of draw, like, and they've had, like, art lessons for the last 20 years, you know what I mean? <laughs> what kind of drawing do you mean? Because, I mean, yeah, I, I guess so, you know. What happened between age four and age 24? Somebody came along and said, you know, um, you know, there you are drawing your, your little house. I'll just draw a house here. I'm a very good drawer. Uh, you got your house here, and you got a door you know, there's a door handle, and then you need a window, because all houses, and they all have curtains, so you have that. And then you have the chimney, and then if you notice, like, every house just has smoke billowing out of it, you know. And then you got the dog house over here, which, you know, has dog written off the roof. And you're sitting there drawing and all this stuff, and then somebody comes along and says, oh, that's not how you draw a chimney. A chimney goes like this, and they, and they go like this, and they're like, you can't draw. The chimney's straight. And this is, and they start correcting the whole thing, and you believe it, and here's the thing, the tongue can affect our entire destiny. This is not a good effect, James writes. He says it can set on fire the course of our entire existence. Literally, a spoken lie, when it's believed, becomes a curse in our life. A spoken lie, when it's believed, becomes a curse in our life. And somebody comes along and says that to you, you believe it, and it can literally shut down maybe something that God actually gifted you in. To the point where when you come back 20 years later and you say, you know, how many of you can draw? It, you, you are so afraid of drawing because you know you can't draw even though you're believing a lie and that's shutting down something that God might have even planted in you. This is like Moses who said to the Lord, I am slow of speech and tongue. 
But in Acts 7.22, Stephen says that Moses was powerful in speech and action. So was he slow in speech and tongue? Or was he powerful in speech and action? I would say he was powerful in speech and action from looking at Moses' life. But the reason why Moses said, I'm slow in speech and tongue, is because he had just spent 40 years with sheep, rehearsing all the negative things from his past in the theater of his mind, to the point where he literally believed something about himself that wasn't true. And he said, I'm slow in speech and tongue. And God goes up to him and says, who gave man his mouth, Moses? In other words, what do you mean you're so You think I'm making a mistake? Oh, you're right, Moses. I am so sorry. I had the wrong guy. You're right. You're slow of speech and tongue. That's right. When I created you, I made a big mistake. I totally forgot. I actually meant to call the rock next to you, and you were in the way. So, excuse me, Mr. Rock, can you lead the people out of his... No. You know, <laughs> Moses believed he was slow of speech and tongue, but that wasn't the truth about who he was, because the truth about who he was is who Stephen says in Acts 7.22, that Moses was powerful in speech and action. That's a good leader, by the way. There's people who are powerful in speech, but they're not powerful in action. Good leaders are powerful in speech and action. They're able to do what they say they're going to do. They follow through on things and stuff like that. So they're powerful in speech and action, right? So I believe that there are things in us that God has deposited in us that have literally shut down because we have believed lies that were spoken over us from the time we were little. When I speak in some DTSs on, on destiny or, or knowing the will of God for your life or whatever, one of the things that we do is we just sit down and we just ask the Lord, God, when I was an idea in your mind, when you, when you had the idea, you know, what were the things that you planted in me that I don't even know are there anymore because I've listened to these spoken lies and I've believed them and they've become curses in my life. And the Lord just speaks to people and reminds them of, of the things that he deposited in them. I've never met more young people than I have today where when you ask them what they're going to do, they're like, I don't know. Yeah. Well, so what are you good at? I don't know. So well, what are you going to do with your life? I don't know. What do you enjoy doing? Uh, I don't know. Wow, that just shows me that the, the creation is completely unplugged from the creator. They need to go back and say, hey, God, what did you, what did you put in me? You know, what do I like to do? I don't even know. And just let him remind you of it because he will. Uh, I remember when I did that, the Lord said, Derek, just write down everything that you're good at. And I wrote down, you know, I liked speaking, communication, writing, communication. You know, all my stuff was mostly communications based and traveling, of course, and stuff like that. And the Lord said, Derek, if you get asked to do anything outside of that stuff, the answer is no. That doesn't mean that, you know, I'm not servant-hearted and I won't serve and all that stuff, because, of course, we have to pitch in and help and all that. I mean, if somebody calls me and asks me to help them move, I'll help them move. But it's not that. But it just means that as far as a long-term ministry focus, you know, it needs to be communication-based stuff is what the Lord wants me involved in. And, and the reconciliation stuff and all that. I was, my brother jokes me because he said I was the only five-year-old who asked for a pulpit for his birthday. You know, <laughs> the pulpit is the wooden thing that preachers preach from, you know. And so my dad built me a pulpit and I'd put it in the corner of my room and I'd preach to like millions of people. And they all got saved and healed and massive revivals among children around the world. So I remember when we were in... I remember when we were in um, Venice, you know, we were buying this piece of rust called the Anastasis. And uh, it was this big ship that, that YWAM, you know, was buying as, our, as one of the 
mercy ships. And my brother and I are actually one of the first people on the boat because we, we ran ahead of the adults and all the adults are behind us. And we went to the right, they went to the left. You know, we're exploring the whole ship. And one time we stepped into this closet and we fell through the rusty floor and we both landed be right between these like, big spiky metal things. <laughs> so we like left there, we ran up to the adults, we were like scared to death. We ran up there. I remember the adults were singing, what a mighty God we serve. And we're like, oh yeah, oh God, you're amazing. Uh, yeah, we and uh, side note, but when we when we were in Venice, uh, you know, um, the YWAMers that had money went to Argentina for the World Cup soccer games because we realized we couldn't sail this boat because it was unsailable, and uh, and the ones who didn't have money just stayed in Venice, and we were in the ones who didn't have money, so we just stayed in Venice and we were camping out there and stuff, and there were all these kids there, so you know, the kids just began getting this idea like maybe we should do some stuff as kids. This is like kind of the precursor to King's Kids. And uh, that God could still use us, even though we were you know, sitting around with nothing to do. And so we uh, just decided to, to uh, put together some kind of evangelism piece that we could take to the squares of Venice. And I don't know who thought of it, but we thought of Jesus and Zacchaeus. My brother was Jesus in, in, in that little piece. And I was, um, no, I was a tree. And I had a, a, <laughs> I had, I had a sign in seven different languages hanging here that said tree, and then I stood there like this, you know, and Jesus came along and, like, climbed up me, and uh, Zacchaeus came along, climbed up me, and Jesus walks by. And what amazed me, though, was that, like, people actually came to know the Lord for, through that. I remember this, like, you know, this guy is probably about, like, 40 years old. He comes up to me, and he's, like, crying and crying, and he's like, you know, I need Jesus. And I was like, oh, he's over there. <laughs> I'm the tree. So... <laughs> <laughs> but it was pretty amazing how, how people actually came to know the Lord through those things. Pretty wild. You know, um, yeah, so many second-generation YWAM stories, aren't there? Uh, yeah, so, so I'm sitting on the plane, and, uh, and I see this girl getting on the plane, <coughs> and, um, and I, just had, I just felt in my spirit, that spirit-to-spirit -spirit communication, that girl wants to commit suicide. She comes and she sits down beside me, and uh, I don't like to talk a lot on planes, so uh, I usually put in earplugs, you know, that's like my, and they're bright colored, you know, like I have red, white, and blue ones, you know, they're like, woo, woo, and uh, just, you know, can't hear you. Um, but uh, in this instance, I just felt like the Lord wanted me to speak to them, so I just didn't have my earplugs in yet. I've got them in my hand, I'm ready. But uh, she comes in, and I just said to her, um, so why do you want to commit suicide? And you know, her jaw just drops, and she kind of pales, and she looks at me. And she, um, she says, nobody knows that. She said, I haven't told anybody. And I said, well, there is someone who knows. I said, uh, I'm a Christian, and you know, I really uh, believe in God, trust in God, have a relationship with God. And, and when he got on the plane, he just pointed you out and, uh, and said to me, you want to commit suicide. Is that true? And she said, yes. She said, I've been planning it for the last few months now, and uh, everything's in place. And she said, but I haven't told anybody. And I said to her, I bet there's some steps that you've gone through to get you to this point. And would it be OK if I just kind of walked you through these steps that you've probably gone through to get to this point, and then uh, we can talk about it a little bit more? Is that all right? And she said, yeah, that's fine. And I grabbed the barf bag, you know, from the seat in front of me and got out a pen. And here's what I, 
I wrote down. Um, these are kind of some steps that the accuser, that our enemy, leads us down. And the first step has to do with doubt. We begin to doubt uh, stuff. We doubt our abilities, doubt all this stuff. It's, this is the same strategy that the enemy used with Eve when he says, you know, did God really say, you know, did God really say you're supposed to do the school of worship? Did God really say you're supposed to go on outreach? Did God, by the way, if he called you to do the school, go on outreach. You know, the Lord knew that there was an outreach. He's not surprised by that. He's not, oh, no, I forgot. Yeah, there's another three months. Oh, oh. You know, so do the whole school. Otherwise, you don't want to. Otherwise, you don't have to do it again because you missed out on something God had for you. So, just encouraging you. Uh, uh, doubt. You begin to doubt the word of God. Uh, you begin to doubt the, the. If you doubt the word of God, you begin to doubt the character of God. You know, because if you doubt His word and who He is, then you begin to doubt. You know, His character and His nature. You begin to doubt the purposes of God. Uh, you begin to doubt the, yourself as a result and your abilities and your talents. And, uh, and doubt then leads us into confusion. And you start getting confused. Uh, when you listen to doubt, you begin to confuse. Remember, there's nothing wrong with doubting, like doubting Thomas, but God doesn't want to leave us there. Remember, he didn't leave Thomas there. He said, Thomas, here's my hands, here's my feet, check it out. And confusion is where you begin to think that you're all alone. <coughs> the enemy begins to lie to you. You know, oh, you're all alone. Nobody else understands. And your problems are unique and complicated, and there's no way out. That's the enemy's lie constantly to all of us. He's, he's, he's not that creative. And if we don't tell people about this kind of stuff, we think that, you know, we're the only one hearing it, right? But the reality is we all hear this. You know, oh, you know, oh, your problems are unique and complicated. Um, and by the way, I would just say, you know, sin complicates things. Um, so fear is the next step that comes in after confusion, fear. And this can be fear of rejection. Uh, it can be a fear of failure. Uh, it can be a fear of um, others. It can be a fear of uh, completing things, you know, so you don't even start things. Some people might appear lazy, but they're not really lazy. They're just dominated by a fear that they won't be able to finish anything or do anything or do it the right way, so they just give up even trying to start it. There was a girl living with us uh, for counseling, and she, on a Saturday morning, my mom, you know, my, my brother had his uh, music practice and I had my thing and dad had something and mom had something so my mom said to her do you think you can wash the dishes and she was like oh sure she was like in her early 20s and but she grew up as a as a as a movie star from the time she was a baby she was literally born on a soap opera set grew up as a as a star and and you know had literally grown up in that environment and then her life was such a mess one of her producers had heard of my parents and called and said can you help her because she's just spiraling out of control? And so she, they prayed about it, and she came to live with us, okay? So, so mom says to her, do you think you can wash the dishes? Because we got to run to our stuff, the breakfast dishes. And she says, okay. So we all go to our stuff, and I was the first one to get back. I was probably like, 
you know, eight years old or so. And I get back, and there she is standing in the middle of the kitchen, and I can see she's been crying and probably crying the whole time we're gone. And I noticed, the second thing I noticed is the dishes are still on the table. And I said to her, um, you okay? No. Why? I can't wash the dishes. I said, why not? She goes, because I'm too stupid to wash dishes. <laughs> I'm like, what? I'm like, I've never used this excuse. This is, this is great. You, you what now? Uh, I'm too stupid to wash dishes. I was like, you're, you're too stupid to wash dishes? Now, you know, it's amazing how Laura can show us stuff, right? Here I am at eight years old. All of a sudden, you know, it kind of like rewinds her life. And I see her as a little girl, probably like Kiara's age, you know, walking into the kitchen and wanting to help with the dishes, not realizing that all the adults in the kitchen are servants and that she's actually, you know, she's the mistress of the house because that's the kind of environment she grew up in. And so they kick her out of the kitchen. And they wouldn't let her, you know, wash the dishes because there's no way she would wash the dishes. They'd all lose their jobs. And so I, I kind of, and she interprets that as a little girl as I'm too stupid to wash dishes. So she just gives up. So here she is standing in our kitchen going, I'm too stupid to wash dishes. And so I kind of see that whole thing flash through my head. And I said to her, oh, I said, I want you to know you're not too stupid to wash dishes. I said, here, watch this. And I, I collected all the dishes and I carried them over to the sink. And I showed her, and she said, what happens if I break one? I said, that's a great question. I held a dish over the tile floor, and I just dropped it and went, and I said, don't do that with mom's china. She'll kill you. But we have a lot of these cheap Walmart dishes over here. I was like, so what you do is you get the broom. And I showed her how to sweep it all up and you know, dump that out. And, and then you know, we washed the dishes together. And I showed her how to dry it and put it in the drying rack, all this stuff. And so. It got to the point where like, we began to teach her about everything. She had no idea how to clean a bathroom. She had no idea how to vacuum. She had no idea how to do any of that stuff. It got to the point where like on Saturday mornings at breakfast, she'd go, is it OK if I clean the house? And my brother and I would go, hmm, well, I guess you can clean the house. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Isn't that weird? I mean, you could look at her and just say, oh, she's too lazy. She's not doing anything. Or, but, you know, as you begin asking some questions, you realize, whoa, 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 there's something going on here that has her paralyzed, you know, with a fear to even start something because she's afraid of what might happen. Fear of yourself. Fear of the church response is another one, uh, you know, where the enemy just kind of leads us down this path. And, uh, and fear of God's rejection is, of course, the deepest one. And then the, that leads us into a, a despair. Uh, and despair is where we really begin to believe there's no way out and we begin to panic. This is where panic begins to set in and, and we believe there's no way out. When we get to that stage, that then leads to separation or isolation. And let me tell you, God never designed us to be separated or isolated. I'm not talking about, oh my gosh, I've been around so many people, I just need a break from people. That's one thing. I'm talking about like even you begin to withdraw emotionally and you just become alone and angry. And you can even be in a group of people, but you just kind of begin to withdraw and get alone and angry. Uh, and separation and isolation leads us into uh, death. And this can be a physical death. Um, 
you know, an extreme case like a suicide. But much more often for us as Christians, it's like the death of a vision or a dream or something that God kind of deposited in our hearts. Or, you know, we started obeying something that we thought was him speaking to us, but then, you know, doubt came in, things got confusing, we kind of became afraid, and then we kind of despaired and separated, isolated, and, you know, it just kind of died. And that's much more often what happens. And let me tell you something. Can I just tell you something? And I know I'm kind of stepping out on, a, on, a, on thin ice here. I'm not sure, and I'm still thinking about it, okay? So my mind isn't made up. But here's, here's where I'm going on this. I'm not sure that visions die. Uh, from the perspective, this is the perspective, from the perspective that if the vision is from the Lord, he's not dead. And it's his vision. And it's always alive in his heart. I think visions die because we believe them to be dead. Now, the Lord may take us through a difficult time, kind of the cracking of the nutshell when you think about the seed. He might take us through a difficult time. There may be a season where the vision, you know, is, is silent for a while because it's not the right timing. But if we might be, believe the vision to be dead, but I'm just not sure visions die because God's not dead. He's very much alive. And if the vision and the dream was from him, it's always his intention to see it fulfilled. He doesn't just throw his vision around for you know, so it can die in our hearts, you know. The enemy, I think, takes us through these steps where he gets us to this point, and the vision does die because we believe it to be dead. And I just want to encourage you, if that's you, you need to breathe some life back into that vision and just, and just go back to, God, this vision was from you, and I just want to hold on to you because it was from you, and I'm just going to believe that this vision was from you and hold on to it and and, you know, love you and worship you and praise your name because you are not dead. You are the resurrection and the life. And, uh, and, but the enemy takes us down this path, and, uh, and that's where, where we end up. When we, we're going to continue here. When we come back, it's time for a break. Love you guys.
Um, cool. <laughs> the, uh, the greatest weapon that we have in our, in our spiritual battle is forgiveness and repentance. That's the greatest tool we have. The enemy uses the, the words and all that kind of stuff, brings us down those, those steps. And the greatest tool that we have in our spiritual battle is forgiveness and repentance. Even in the revelation of God <coughs> that Job had, remember Job had the, it's kind of this big revelation of God. And he says, you know, uh, Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. And you asked, you know, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, all this stuff. And then he says, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And people like to stop there. But then the next part, he says, therefore, I despise myself and repent in the dust and ashes. So there was there there was repentance there was the response to the revelation of God. This is someone who like someone who realizes they really need the Lord and you know they end up repenting and giving their lives to him. You know, it's like that kind of a response that they have. And um, I'm not going to go into uh, all this stuff too much more. I just wanted to, to talk a little bit about um, worship 
and 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 spiritual warfare because that's that yeah go ahead They, the, so I wrote those things down for her, and then I said, would you like me to write down the, the six steps to life? And, and she said, yes, I would like that. Do you want me to give you those? I can. Um, to life instead of death. And, and it's kind of like, how do we believe truth instead of the lies of the enemy? And it comes because of... Um, we can get to a place in our walk with God, Romans 8, verse 1 and 2, uh, says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not even a little bit, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's Romans 8, verse 15 and 16, which says, uh, you know, that we are adopted into his family and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Um, and it lists all this stuff at the end of Romans 8. And um, oh, um, we can get to a point in our Christian walk, and I would say I'm there, uh, where we can be absolutely convinced about the love of God. And when you are absolutely convinced about the fullness of the love of God, let me tell you, so many things in your life change. Inferiority is gone because there's nobody else you have to compare yourself to. There's nothing to be afraid of. You know, uh, envy is gone because there's nothing to be envious of because God is our provider and, I, and we have everything we need. Uh, you know, competition, spirit of competition is gone because the only person that I'm striving to please is God. You know, all of these things is is... You know, the fear of the future, the fear of the past, fear of the present, all that stuff is gone because I know God's, you know, amazing in his timing. When you are, when you are absolutely convinced of the love of God for you, it is a life-changing thing. And we can be convinced by the love of God by, first of all, embracing the truth uh, where there is doubt. Instead of doubt, to embrace the truth. Hi, honey. Um, isn't she lovely? Uh, we can embrace the truth instead of, instead of a doubt. And it's important to surround ourselves with the truth. Truth is God's perspective. Um, and, and instead of confusion, when you believe the truth and you know the truth and you've been set free by truth because you're holding on to the teachings of Jesus, then the confusion disappears and there's clarity. The Lord just brings clarity. Um, it's amazing how, you know, Jesus is the light, and it's like when the light turns on, there's clarity, and suddenly you have perspective. You, you, you have perspective of the future. You have a plan, you know, that the Lord can give you because you're, you're, you're walking in truth, and there's clarity about who you are and how, who you're made to be and your design, and you can make plans for your life based on your design because you understand that God is your designer, and you're glorifying Him by moving forward with those plans. <coughs> Instead of, um, instead of fear, there's confidence. One of my favorite verses in Scripture, and I know I have a lot of favorites, but one of my favorite verses in Scripture is 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4 and 5, that we get our competence and our confidence from God. Not just our confidence, but our competence too. That's the NIV version, 1984. We get our confidence and our competence from God. It says that He's made us competent as ministers of the gospel. 
you know, you don't have to share uh, things you don't know about God with people. <laughs> you just share what you know about him. And he uses that. Uh, that's the title of my book coming out uh, near the end of this year, Planting God, Planting God to Grow Church. You know, that we're just called to plant the things of God that we know about him into the lives of other people and then seeing what he wants to grow. And it might not look like church. It might look like something completely different, but uh, just planting God in the lives of people. And instead of despair, uh, hope. And if you're ever in a place of despair or discouragement, go to BibleGateway.com, put in the word hope, and read all the scripture references about hope, and you'll feel a little bit like an idiot for having been discouraged. I'm serious, because there's so much there about hope, it's a little overwhelming. And after you kind of meditate on all those verses on hope, you're just like, oh my goodness, I, what was I even in despair for? Uh, and instead of, hope, instead of separation or isolation, God wants to draw us into intimacy with him first and then with each other. You know, we can, have, we can, we can love one another just like Jesus said we can. Uh, we can have intimate relationship, um, you know, where we are encouraging and supporting and praying for each other and stuff like that because that's where God wants us to be instead of in isolation and alone. <coughs> And, uh, and where the enemy intended death, of course, it, there's life. And there's lots of scripture references that I'm showing with each one of these things, and you can just kind of look them up in your own, in your own time um, that go with each of these and just kind of meditate on these. And at this point, I said to her, would you rather continue along the path of death that you're on, or would you rather get to know God and embrace the life that he has for you so you don't have to live in this constant shame and uh, condemnation and fear of death and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and she gave her life to the Lord. She said, I would love to embrace life. And so I just set her up with a Bible study in, in uh, where she was from. I think it was Houston, uh, Texas. I didn't want her to go to church. Um, there's, there's times where church is helpful for people, but I think sometimes Bible studies are a better place for people to um, kind of grow and get nurtured and discipled and stuff before they forage into the church environment. <laughs> Some churches are great at that kind of growth, too, and, um, but it, I just felt like a Bible study would be a good environment for her. Um, I'll also just tell you these, and then, and then I'm going to go on to something else. Uh, instead of the four channels of shame that the enemy uses, the, God, the Lord uses channels too. And they're the four channels of honor. And uh, I love the fact that it says that he wants to honor you. He said that several times in scripture. Kind of blows our minds, doesn't it? Uh, and then at the end of Jude, it says that he wants to present you before his glorious throne with great joy. You know? And what's amazing is the four channels are the same, but it's just that he honors us through them instead of beating us up over them. Uh, instead of non-biblical culture, it's biblical culture. Uh, instead of graceless religion, it's grace-based relationship where we just have grace for each other, <coughs> understanding that we'll all make mistakes, but we forgive and, and grow together in relationship. Instead of unaccepting parents or family, it's accepting parents or family. And instead of abuse, it's encouragement. And it can be in all of those, just building each other up and encouraging each other. Um, and those are the channels that he uses to really just honor us and bless us 
in our lives. He's created parents and family to be a blessing, to be an amazing relationship, one that's encouraging to each other and blessing and supportive and all that stuff. And for those of you that don't have that kind of a situation, it's okay because the Lord will use you to create that when you have your family and you can have whole new family systems as we kind of talked about. For some of you, you might be the first Christian in your family. I'm kind of jealous. That's a great position to be in. I mean, I think back to, I wonder who was the first Christian in my family history. They're already before the throne of God, but I can't wait to meet them and just, you know, give them a big, long hug and just say thank you for having broken that cycle because, uh, man, we've all been blessed as a result. So, cool. Cool. <clears throat> Here's what I want to say about everything I've talked about. <coughs> there are times we, we have attacks. There's times we go through desert experiences. There's times where it's just a result of our stupid decisions or whatever. There's times where there's spiritual warfare. There's times where there's deliverance. Do you want to know what it, all of that stuff, what the, the one uh, thing is that, it's, that is common that brings healing in all of those areas? is worship. It's worship. Uh, you don't have to stress, is, is this attacking an enemy? Is this God testing? Is this whatever? Because our response is just worship. Worship. Later on, we can look back and we can see, hey, that was a test. Or, oh, wow, that was really an attack of the enemy. Or, wow, that was just a desert experience. Or whatever. But our, our call, our, our freedom lies in our ability to just be able to worship Him. I mean, I just love that hymn. I just can't wait to give a big hug to the hymn writer, you know, of that whole, uh, the, you know, turn your eyes upon Jesus, you know, look full in His wonderful face, and the, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. That is just such a critical thing for us to remember. Because worship is, when we respond in worship, then we discover the, the, the freedom, the, the peace, the joy, the love in the midst of whatever it is we're going through. Because, yes, Horatio Spafford wrote that hymn, but he didn't write that hymn, uh, you know, to, he didn't sit down and say, hey, I'm going to write a hymn. He sat down and he said, I've just lost my four daughters, my son, and everything I have, and I'm just going to worship that's what this is all about. And the hymn was, was from his worship of the Lord. Worship is such a powerful component. And um, it can be personal worship. It can be corporate worship if you're with a group. you know. But worship is, as we focus our eyes on Jesus, is where we find our, our compass. You know, Our lives need to be kind of like a compass where the needle's always pointing to Jesus. You know? Where when we're in the forest, we can look down at the compass, and, and, and as we focus on Jesus, we know where we are, we know where we're going, we know the direction, all that kind of stuff. Um, and <clears throat> I think sometimes, as worship leaders, we can be susceptible to thinking that we are the forerunners, we are the ones who are breaking through, and all that kind of stuff. And I don't necessarily agree with that. I would say there are times where that is true. You look at Jehoshaphat. They sent the worshipers on ahead of the army. 
and all this kind of stuff happened. But you look at some other battles, and they sent on people ahead who started an ambush. <laughs> you look at other battles, and they sent on people who drew the army out of the city, and then the other guys came in and they attacked the city. And you know, I mean, so there's all kinds of different battle strategies. Uh, I think the key is, you know, knowing which strategy God wants to use for which battle. Uh, but I would say for us uh, in our personal walk that, that worship is always the response we need to have uh, as we worship him. And as we worship him, he'll draw all the people around us to him too, which is just a really exciting component as we're focused on him in our lives. Uh, you know, as a worship leader, there may be times when you're leading worship and you feel like there's massive spiritual warfare going on. Uh, I would encourage you, you know, if you're a worship leader, don't say things like, um, wow, I know we're all really tired and stuff like that. You don't know that. Uh, as a worship leader, maybe you're tired, but you don't need to project that on everybody. Your tiredness doesn't mean everybody else's tiredness. I know, I know, that, I mean, I was sitting there one time and this girl gets up to lead worship and she's like, I know, you know, we've had an exhausting week and we're all just really you know, but I want to encourage you. And I'm sitting there thinking, actually, my week's been pretty easy. Um, you know, I've been doing a lot of writing, which kind of refreshes me, actually. I love it. And um, I'm feeling pretty good, actually. So, you know, don't project your, your junk or your whatever it is you're experiencing on, on other people. Uh, that isn't spiritual warfare. Now, ahead of time, you may get a something from the Lord that says, hey, there is whatever, you know, a spirit of unbelief, or there's like a spirit of, you know, fear in regard to finances, or there's a spirit of, you know, whatever. And, you, you know, you can, you can battle that before you lead worship, is when I like to do it, and especially with the worship team, and just take a moment and just pray, and do some warfare, and just fight, and just say in the name of Jesus, we just come against all of the attacks of the enemy. We come against these things that we're sensing, and we just pray that as we worship today, that all that stuff, that all that junk would just be lifted off. And I don't even like when I'm leading worship to speak that stuff out. I don't like speaking much at all when I lead worship. Matter of fact, I, I, I don't like speaking at all when I lead worship. I just like the songs to minister to people because let's say, let's say that little song, right, the, the little simple song, Jesus is all that I need, and then I'm leading worship and I say, you know, God is our provider, amen, amen, and I'm focusing everybody on God as our provider, maybe, maybe the Lord actually wanted to speak to somebody about how he's their healer, and I've got everybody focused on provider now. That's why I don't like speaking when I lead worship, because I just want God to speak in as many voices as he can from the song. There may be part of the song that speaks to somebody, part of the other song that speaks to somebody else. How many people are in this room? Let's say there's, you know, 25 people in this room. That means God can speak in 25 voices if we let him. As soon as I start speaking, he's limited to one because they're, they're listening to, to what I'm saying. You know what I mean? That's why I'll do the spiritual warfare beforehand, and then I'll lead in worship, and afterwards people come up to me, and they'll be like, I came into here and I was just so afraid because blah, 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 blah. And as we were worshiping, you know, it was like the Lord just kind of lifted that from me and it was just awesome. Thanks for leading worship or whatever. And that's because I've just let the Lord, you know, and the Holy Spirit deal with that person and they've gotten that thing. It's also because we did the spiritual warfare stuff before the worship. 
And, uh, and then during the worship, the Lord just answered our prayer. Lord, as we're worshiping you, just, you know, encourage people to pour out your water for those that are in the desert, for those that are in the battle, Lord. Just, just lift their arms like Moses so that they know that they don't have to fight the battle. The battle is yours, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And whatever it is that we're praying out beforehand. And the Lord answers that in the context of worship. Does that make sense? Um, and that, that all comes from when I was down in Barbados. And uh, there, there was a worship, uh, there was a thing going on there. And I was part of the worship team. And we were leading worship. And I just felt like God was getting ready to speak in about 367 different voices. That's about how many people were there. And I just got the sense like God was about to speak in 367 voices to the 367 people, all different things. And all of a sudden, this one guy jumps up and starts speaking from the microphone. And it's like, I saw all of God's voices go. And he had to, <laughs> had to try and go through the one, you know. And... Um, and so just be very careful um, about speaking because you don't want to cut off any of those voices. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't. If you really feel the Lord's impressing on you to say something, go ahead and say it because it may be a confirmation for somebody that needs to hear that. And that's fine. Don't be restricted. You can, you can speak. But I just encourage you to really give us, to trust the Holy Spirit and really give the Holy Spirit as much access into people's you know, ears as possible. Um, there are times where worship is the forerunner. Like I said, with Jehoshaphat, there's times where we've sent worship teams out ahead of evangelism teams, for instance, where they've kind of done a worship thing around areas that we were going to do evangelism in. There's times when, you know, that's why we kind of have worship before, uh, you know, kind of at the beginning of the service. But I've had times in my church where I've said, hey, I'm going to preach first, and then we're going to worship because I just feel like I'm going to preach, and then as we worship, the Lord just wants to take the stuff from the message and just kind of, you know, let it kind of um, just kind of grow in our hearts through worship. So we're actually going to start with the preaching today. I've had times where, like, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, this coming Sunday, or, you know, the November 23rd, we're just going to have all worship. We're not going to have, you know, a speaker, just worship and verses about Thanksgiving and just kind of do that. You know, so there's times when that... I remember this guy who got up one time. He, I went to go hear him speak. He's a famous evangelist. And he said, he got up to speak and he says, I just want you to know that it's the work of the Holy Spirit that brings people to Jesus and not necessarily my preaching. So I'm going to start with the altar call. He's like, anybody here that just feels they're supposed to give their lives to Jesus, would you just come up forward right now and just come up? Because we're just going to do this right now. I'm going to preach afterwards. Does anybody... And it was so funny because we're so used to like, you know the altar call being the response to the message, you know. And he just got up there and he just showed us that, no, it's, the, it's a response to the Holy Spirit, not to the message. And so we're just going to, you know, let the Holy Spirit do that right now. And it was amazing. Like, lots and lots of people came forward and went off with the counselors and stuff like that. And then he preached a message. Uh, so, you know, the, the key isn't that we have a, a pattern that we go through. The key is that we're seeking the Lord and just being sensitive to how he wants to do things because um, he may want to move those components that we're always used to having in a certain order. He may want to move them around for certain purposes. And as worship leaders, just be open to that. Don't be like, oh, no, we have to have the worship first because we're the forerunners and because da-da-da. Hey, listen, if you're like that, then you have already cut off what God wants to do. Then you're already saying, no, 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 God has to do it my way. Just be open and just say, hey, if, if, 
if you feel we're supposed to go that direction, that's awesome, man. We'll do that. You know, and just be kind of open-handed and, and realize that worship is an important component and, it, and it's part of what we do. Uh, and as worship leaders, w- you know, we're primarily there to serve. And I want to say one more thing about leading worship, okay? I was in Japan and I was asked to speak in this church and I had nothing. Now, usually when I speak, I like to have what I'm going to speak on beforehand. This is like in worship, too, when I lead worship. I like to have everything prepared because I think the Holy Spirit can speak like a week ahead of time just as much as he can speak like the same time, you know. And I'd rather do the week ahead of time so I can get all my PowerPoints ready and stuff. I have thousands of PowerPoints. I created a whole bunch of new ones this week and all that stuff. But, you know, I'll kind of go through it. I'm I'm ready for anything. If you guys ask a question, there's probably a 99% chance I can find something that I've prepared that that addresses what you're dealing with. But, um, you know, so I'm prepared, but the Holy Spirit's totally free to do his stuff, right? And um, so, but anyways, this service, I had nothing. And I get to there, and I'd I'd asked. It's not because I didn't. I was like, Lord, what am I supposed to say? You know, Lord, what am I supposed to say? It's like nothing, you know. I'm like, you know, God, something, you know, scripture. And I'm thumbing through all these scriptures. Nothing's looking good. I'm looking through past things, you know, new messages. You know, I'm kind of seeking the Lord. Yeah, and there is nothing going on. It's like, you know, like just a silence, you know. And I'm like. You know, okay, so I, I get to the church, still nothing. Worship is going on. I'm like, okay, God, you know, we got about 10 minutes. Okay, God, we got about, we got about four minutes. Okay, God, we got, oh, that's my name. I'm being introduced. We got nothing. And I'm walking up on the stage, still nothing. I get to the pulpit, still zero things. Now, I've learned if I don't know what I'm going to speak on, I just shut up and wait, because otherwise you just end up saying something stupid. So I'm just kind of there, and I'm like, okay, now, I'm just kind of like waiting. The translator is smiling at me. You know, she's like, you know. You know. And so I open up my Bible, and I just kind of open my Bible, and the first thing I see is Psalm 150. And I suddenly said, you know, I think, uh, my dear Japanese church, we've sinned this morning. Uh, it says, worship God with a harp, and I don't see a harp. And it says, worship the God with lyre, and I don't see a lyre. It says, worship God with dancing. We didn't dance today. And I could see that they were all thinking, oh, no, we need to get a harp. You know, we need to get a harp. Okay, harp, lyre, dancing, you know. And uh, there's just such wonderful, wonderful people. And they're immediately thinking, How, what do we need to do to get this right, you know. And, and uh, I said, unless the psalmist didn't mean that. Maybe the psalmist meant, these are the instruments I use. And we should use whatever instruments you use. Because at the end, he says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And I said, I remember the first time I heard a Japanese worship CD. I just cried because they're just all English songs translated into Japanese. I said, where are the Japanese songs? And I said, I just want to ask you for forgiveness as a worship leader for times when we've said that worship means we have to use a guitar and a bass. We have to sing this and even sing English songs. I said, I just want to ask you for forgiveness for that because that's not worship at all. That's worship from where I'm from, but that's not worship for you. I said, so I'm excited here, you know, what worship is for you because I want to participate in worshiping from your perspective someday. I said, so I just want to ask you for forgiveness. Will you please forgive me? And I go sit down. And the pastor gets up. And this was a church where I'd spoken a few times and, and, and things had happened that were just exciting and fun. 
And uh, so he gets up and he, and, and he says, you know, I just feel we're supposed to worship the Lord. And the girl gets up and she starts singing uh, Shout to the Lord, you know, on the piano. And I'm like, oh, that's what I just asked for forgiveness for, was Shout to the Lord in Japanese. And uh, so I said to the translator, hey, the guy that was playing the drum set, does, does he know any, um, like, ancient Japanese drum rhythms? And she said, oh, I don't know. So she goes up to the drummer at the drum set and talks to him for a second. And he kind of like nods a little bit. So she comes and sits down. And he begins to play the absolute worst thing I've ever heard on drums in my life. It just sounded terrible. It was just, it was just out of rhythm, out of sync, out of everything. It was just, I was like, oh, no, I'm so sorry. I should have never asked. You know, it's it like any, any momentum that had kind of built in the spirit just kind of, you know. And uh, all of a sudden, <coughs> he breaks out in these Japanese drum rhythms. And the whole church, and this is a conservative church, the whole church just jumps up to their feet and they start shouting in the same rhythm he's playing in, but they're all saying different things, but it's in the same rhythm. And it just keeps going and going and going and going and going and going and going for about three and a half hours. And I'm sitting there with my video camera, I'm like recording the whole thing, I'm like, this is awesome. And my brother was there with me, and so he's like, this is crazy, dude. I was like, I know, this is crazy. So we're like, we're like videotaping the whole thing. Finally, they just kind of collapse in exhaustion. Everybody's just like sitting there like, oh my gosh, you know. And it was just like this amazing presence of the Lord. And afterwards, the drummer comes up to me and he says, you don't know me, do you? And I said, no. He said, I was the taiko drum leader at the oldest temple, uh, oldest Buddhist temple in Kyoto in Japan. He says, I know all of the ancient Japanese drum rhythms. He said, when you asked me, or when Kyoko came and asked me to, to, um, to play the ancient Japanese drum rhythms, he said, I saw all these demons, spirits of fear and death, and they were attacking me. He said, I don't think it sounded very good. I said, no, no, you're right. Yeah, it didn't, didn't sound good at all. It was terrible. He said, yeah. He said, and then he said, I saw these two big golden gates, and they just swung open, and I saw the Lord. And he said, and the Lord was just surrounded by all of this worship. All of the nations were worshiping him. He said, nations that we didn't even know existed are already standing before the throne of God, worshiping him in languages we didn't even know have been spoken on this earth. And they're all just worshiping him. And he said, and I looked down and I had my Japanese kimono on. And he said, and I had my big taiko drum instead of this drum set. He said, I had this big taiko drum. And he said, so I pushed it forward and I did a very, very formal bow before the Lord and I looked up and the Lord bowed back, which is one of my favorite parts of the story. He said, the Lord bowed back to me and he said, I picked up my hammer to hit the taiko drum and the Lord said, I have been missing the sounds of Japan from before my throne. And he said, that's when I just started to play. And I, and I don't think he had any idea how long he was playing before the Lord, but he was just playing and playing and playing and playing. Now, I, I have had spoken out over me many times that I will lead nations in worship. The odd thing is, I, I kind of led that church in worship by not actually ever leading worship. <laughs> Does that make sense? Uh, you know, there are all kinds of different ways that we can lead worship, and I think one of the greatest things that we need to do as Western-trained worship leaders or as worship leaders trained in kind of the classic sense of worship is facilitate a movement of God that releases the sounds of God from all the nations, not just from our nation, but from all the nations. 
Because, you know, Revelation 7, 9, every tongue, every tribe, every language is heard worshiping before God. And, uh, and so we can, you know, when, as worship leaders, we need to be sensitive to what does the Lord want us to do, especially when we're in other cultures, and just be open to how God wants us to operate and to minister. Now, this doesn't mean that I never lead worship in other countries. I just came from, uh, you know, a month vacation in, in uh, Korea with our family. We were visiting all of Hiran's relatives and visiting my mom and dad at uh, Handong. Uh, global University, and so we were traveling around in, in Korea, and at one of the churches, my, my um, uncle's church, my wife's uncle's church, you know, he asked me to lead worship and sing some songs, and I did, because I'd been asked to, and, uh, and that's fine, but we just need to be very sensitive to what God is asking us to do as worship leaders, and not, to just, not just assume uh, that we're the answer to everything, but just kind of figure it out, because God wants to do and kind of unleash whole new movements of worship. You guys have to understand, YWAM has led in worship, not just our mission, but even the whole global church. I mean, you know, I remember when the Lord spoke to Dave and Dale Garrett about, you know, having scripture in songs and, and scripture choruses, and they started writing scripture choruses, and kind of this whole movement of choruses entered the whole Christian realm. And I'm wondering, God, what is the thing that, that YWAM gets to lead the world in in the next phase of worship? And I would say that one of our challenges is all, all of the worship kind of sounds the same now because we're all using these same electrical instruments. And so we've kind of been boxed into the same sound. But I believe there's a whole new sound God wants to release in worship that is going to come from all of the nations worshiping. And it's very exciting. And it's going to release... A whole new, it's like Jehoshaphat's army. It's going to go ahead and, and kind of break through whole new areas of spiritual warfare. And I believe we are going to see, the, where's Japanese guy? Who's from Japan over here? Yeah. I believe we're going to see the greatest move of God in the history of a nation in the shortest period of time in Japan. We're going to see it's going to, it's going to be even much shorter than the move of God in Korea, and it's going to be even much more pervasive when Christianity starts to look Japanese and sound Japanese and when, they, when uh, there's a healing in the relationship of the nations around them. But we're going to see just this amazing movement. And as worship leaders, we don't want to get in the way. We want to facilitate what God wants to do because that's really what leadership is, right? It's serving and facilitating. And, uh, and so I just wanted to share that piece with you, too. Any other thoughts? Any comments? Any questions you have? If, um, you know, if you're in a situation someday when you're leading worship and there is a manifestation of some sort, somebody starts freaking out or something, don't stop worshiping. Just keep going. And, uh, and just pull someone or get somebody to deal with that. They can take them outside or deal with them outside, stuff like that. But don't make it a central issue. A lot of demons like the attention, so we don't like giving them attention. just kind of makes them mad. So you just kind of like get them out so, uh, and kind of deal with that issue. But just keep worshiping the Lord. Don't let things interrupt or stop or block the worship of the Lord. Any um, comments or questions, thoughts? Appropriate jokes. <laughs> Did you hear the one about the worship leader that walked into the... No, I'm just kidding. 
No? You don't have to have any. I just want to give you an opportunity to. I have really enjoyed being with you this week. It's been a blast. I'm sure we'll see each other more. We're, we're kind of, we kind of come and go a little bit uh, on campus. You're welcome to come to church anytime. The service starts kind of like around 10 o'clock-ish. Um, I get tourists that call me, and they're like, it's 9.45, and there's nobody here. I'm like, yeah, it's 9.45. What do you expect? Um, you know, just, just wait. We'll be there. Um, we just start when everybody gets there. So... <laughs> it's a small enough church where we kind of know when everybody's there and when they're not. So, um, but we kind of start around 10 o'clock, and, um, and you're welcome to come if you'd like to. There's shuttles that leave from the flags uh, at 9.15. I think there's two, sh two shuttles that leave at 9.15 from the flags. If you want to go, though, it's first come, first serve. So if you get there at 9.15, you probably won't get on. I think there was like 14 people last Sunday that, that didn't make it onto the shuttles. So if you want to get there, then... Um, get there a little early, um, and you're welcome to come. It's just a very laid back. This Sunday is potluck Sunday, so if you want, bring some food or drinks or something with you, because we'll all eat together afterwards. If you're coming, and the shuttle—if you go on the shuttles, they usually stop by, yeah, Safeway and pick stuff up. So that's nice of them. Any uh, questions, comments? We love you guys. If you want to um, Facebook me, you can. I probably won't accept your Facebook friendship request, but you're welcome to. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, you're welcome to. You're welcome to Facebook. <laughs> I just say that so I can reject it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I I would love to. I would love to stay in touch and uh, and hear what God's doing in and through you and 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 how this week um, touched you if it did. And uh, and so you're welcome to Facebook me. I'm kind of hard to find, so you can look at. Samantha's, we're friends, and find us that way is probably the easiest way to do it, because I have my, my, and we're friends too, yeah, because my privacy settings are, are really high, and people can't see who my friends are, and all that kind of stuff, so even if you join my friends list, nobody will be able to tell, so. Um, uh, any, any, any questions? No? All right, cool. Thanks, JJ. Give it a hand. So... Let's spend some time just kind of like uh, uh, tell him about what God did uh, through his teaching. And let's get some people to speak out. Anyone want to share what, hap what happened this week? Santa?
That's awesome. Um, and I would just I encourage you, you guys are in one of the most international environments you will ever be in, in YWAM. Uh, YWAM was international before we had other locations. We were international when we had one location. For most businesses, they mean international when they open a Hong Kong branch or you know a different branch. For us, we were international when we just had one location. And what we meant by that was we had 40 or 50 nations that were represented in Lausanne when there was just one base, right? And here in Hawaii when there was just this base. So we're international. Now I would encourage you when you write songs, get them translated. You are surrounded by internationals I mean, my song, Jesus is All That I Need, is translated into 13 different languages. I can lead it in Arabic, I can lead it in French, and Korean, and whatever, because I'm a YWAMer, and there's all those people around me, and I was like, hey, dude, you speak Arabic, can you translate this for me? You know, let's work it out. Hey, I want to have this in Hebrew, I want to have this in every language I can think of. It's a simple chorus, you know, I want to be able to switch languages and sing it in a bunch of different languages, you know, so get your songs translated. You're in a perfect environment for it, and uh, I just want to encourage you. So for you, too. Yeah. You can write them in Spanish, English, get them in other languages, too. Someone else?
Lauren? Last one? One more. No one? Thank you. It's always a, an honor to hear you speak um, into our lives. And just to finish, we'd like to pray for you and your family, if you have uh, any um, subject you want us to pray for. Okay, let me get out my <laughs> No, um, you can pray for us uh, tonight and, and all day tomorrow. I'm speaking at a Campus Crusade for Christ uh, thing on the island here, so you can pray for that. Uh, also, um, we're just, uh, I don't know, what else do we want to pray for? We don't have a van. Our van has been dead for two months. So I can either pray that um, the mechanic finds what's wrong. It's not that they haven't been trying to figure it out. They just can't find it. It's an old van anyway. So you can pray either for resurrection or for provision or something. Uh, and also, um, and just for the family, you know. I think just for our, our kids and our family. Um, in December, we're excited going to the first non or the first international DTS ever to be held in the history of Korea in Jeju Island. And so we're very excited about that. I will. And uh, so I'll be, I'm the first speaker in that DTS. And Ben and Ali just left to head over there for that. So very excited about that. And Oh, really? <laughs> Thanks for that. Good to know. <laughs> I might stay here. So, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, yeah, so you can just um, be in prayer for that already. They're wanting more students. They have, they have a good number, but they're wanting more, uh, just trying to maximize the effectiveness of that DTS. So just be in prayer for them, too. And Andrew's learning piano. Kiara's in ballet. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, whatever else the Lord leads you to pray is great. We want to gather um, 
around you guys and just pray for you as uh, we send you off. Let's, let's all gather. So, Jesus, we just thank you for this family, God. We bless them right now in the name of Jesus. All of these requests, um, we lift them up to you. We stand in the gap. We intercede for them right now. And in the name of Jesus, I just pray for a new vehicle right now. I just pray that you would actually put it on somebody's heart just to just buy them a new vehicle right now. You can do every, anything. You can do anything, God. You, you're, you are limitless in your abundance, Jesus. So, God, I pray that you would open up heaven, God. Just, just bless them, God. I understand. I got four kids, and when your car's broken down, it's like your whole world just collides and crashes, and it's just it's awful. So, <laughs> uh, Lord, uh, bless them, Jesus. I pray for health right now, uh, safety, God, and uh, ask for a blessing on this trip to Jeju, Jesus. Uh, for Derek, God, and, and we just continue to you, ask your blessing upon this family. Thank you, God, for sending them to us in this school for this last week, God. And uh, we just bless their children, Jesus, growing up in a missions context, God, and that they would grow up to um, understand your love and your mission for and destiny for each and every one of their lives, Jesus. We thank you for this family, for their obedience, Jesus to say yes to you in every, in every way, Lord. And so we just we bless them. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks a lot, you guys. And I just want to also say thank you to, um, to you for uh, letting Marsha sit in in this class. And it's just been a blessing to have her here. And I also want to say I've learned from Marsha just this week by just watching her, how she... Um, you know, because I have such respect for her. She has a great leadership blog. It's read by lots of people. She does lots of things. And I, and I just want to compliment her on how she listened. 
Uh, you know, I was just, I was like, I was telling Hidan, you know, she sits in the middle, she takes notes on everything. It's like, you know, and I was convicted about the way I've listened to my friends speak, is like I kind of sit in the back and kind of just kind of listen. I was like, next time I'm going to go hear like one of my friends speak, like I'm going to sit front and center and just take copious notes about everything because it's just so encouraging as a speaker to see that. And I just want to thank you, Marsha, for, for your active listening. It was really 28 pages of notes. There you go. I love that. <laughs> but that's right. <laughs> Books you need to buy. Next time I'll um, I'll push you to 35 pages and I'll spend. No, I just kidding. That's great. Thank you. And such an example to me on how to listen. So that was awesome. Thanks. Thank you, guys. You may be seated. Before we uh, we uh, split up, um, there's uh, get well, Kenzie Karn. If you can fill it up for her, sign sign the get well card for Kenzie, and we will deliver for her today. Yeah. Okay, uh, so you're free to go. Don't forget uh, 1 to 3 p.m. at the prayer room. And uh, tonight, 6.30, Spice Girls. Is at 6? It's at 6. So have a good lunch and a good afternoon. Happy Halloween. Be careful on the road. Thank you.